Lord God, it is it is such an, a joy to be in here in, in this place, in your presence, to be aware of this uh, beloved community that you've gathered together. Lord, I, I know that there's a lot on our hearts and on our minds, and so before we get into the word, God, I want to lift up um, our McKinleyville community with the, the potential suicide that happened on Friday. Um, the loss in that community is great at that high school. And so, Lord, we pray for your peace and your comfort over that school, over each student. Uh, Lord, help them to know how worthy they are, how beloved they are, how loved they are by you, God. Help us to be the bearers of that love. We pray over the teachers going into school tomorrow and for the counselors who are there. Um, I, I pray that they will have supernatural kinds of words to say in the midst of grief and uncertainty. We pray that your name is glorified even in the midst of this pain. Lord, we pray a blessing over uh, the faith community with uh, Rachel Held Evans passing yesterday morning. We pray that, uh, Lord, that you will that, you, that your love and your peace and your grace is just apparent in every area. We know that she has touched so many lives, not for her own sake, but for your sake. So in the midst of the, of the heavy things that are in our lives, Lord, we do want to release this time before you. God, I want to be so aware of your presence right now, so aware of what you're doing in this community and in each of our hearts. So we, we want to be uh, so open to what you have for us. So our hands are also open to receive, because I know, Jesus, I know that there's always a word of truth and encouragement and challenge, a, a word that changes us and shapes us into your people more wholeheartedly and more fully. And so may we see that, may we grasp a hold of that truth, and may that truth go forth with us this week. We love you, we thank you, it is for your glory and your name that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in Mark. Uh, You're all welcome to grab Bibles. There's some Bibles around the room, um, or you can flip up your phone and pull Mark open to Mark chapter 4. Uh, And before we get into today's passage, uh, the last couple of Sundays that we've gathered, well, I guess it was Easter, so it's been a while since we've been in Mark, because two Sundays ago it was Easter, and I decided to jump into Luke to be all crazy, Uh, and then we we went uh, back, we were, I think we were in, what were we in last week, was it Mark, or Luke again, Luke again last week with the prodigal son, for anybody who came to our Sabbath Sunday, so we'll be back in Mark today. So a few weeks ago when we were looking through Mark, and you can open up your Bible to 4 and you'll see where we've been, uh, we were looking at the parable of the sower in the beginning of Mark, where we were looking at the different kinds of soil and the different seed and what God was doing with the soil and the seed. It was very interesting what we looked at with that. And it was all about God's kingdom and how God's kingdom begins and flourishes in certain kinds of places and spaces, that heart soil within us. And then you keep going through here and it says, you know, the lamp on the stand to to bring that light out into the world. And we looked at God's word being a lamp onto our feet and a light onto our path where it's every step forward is just enough to get to the next step. And we have to really be aware of God's presence to move forward in this life. And then we uh, we kind of skipped over the next two seeds, the growing seed and the mustard seed. And so I'd encourage you guys to read that um, on your own. 
But it's like Jesus is trying to meet with his disciples and this huge crowd of people and trying to get them to understand the message that has been true from the beginning of his ministry. Do you remember what the message is from the beginning of Mark? God's kingdom is near. God's kingdom is at hand. He says to repent and believe the good news. The good news is that God's kingdom is available and breaking forth into the world. And so parable after parable, story after story is one of cementing in the minds and hearts of people what God's kingdom looks like and that it is available to all people. So when we look at God's kingdom, sometimes that language can feel very like big and uh, English, you know, <laughs> since you have got queens and kings and all of that. <laughs> Thanks, Trish. <laughs> but, you know, the, the, there, it's, a, it's a word that can kind of get lost for a lot of us. Um, and so when I think of God's kingdom, I think of it as God's dream or God's uh, purpose for creating the world. Um, the kingdom of God is one of shalom. Shalom is a, is a Hebrew word that means completeness. It means wholeness. It means like unbroken connection with other people and unbroken connection within yourself which is kind of one of the hardest things, I think, for a lot of us. Um, unbroken connection with God and then that unbroken connection with the earth. And when we're living into God's kingdom, there's that sense of connectedness that happens, that, that flourishes, that grows, that is abundant. And so when Jesus says, repent, for God's kingdom is at hand, Jesus is saying, Anything that keeps you from that unbroken connection, anything that, that breaks apart that connection, that space of, of greed or power or pride or, uh, or anything that might sever that connection is something that needs to be seen, acknowledged, and released with God. And so that's the whole message of Jesus again and again and again. He gets that space and he's talking about these seeds and what kind of soil is needed. And, and, and he says, you know, the, the, the smallest seed is like the kingdom of God. It's, it's so small, it's almost, you can't even barely see it. But it'll grow to be the largest plant in the garden. This juxtaposition from the smallest to the largest, the, the mustard seed he uses. But then we get to this next part. And it's like Jesus is wanting his disciples to take this, abstract idea of seeds and soil and see it in action. And so it says on the very next day, it says, uh, let's see, verse 35 is where we're going to start. Then that day, the day of the seeds and the crowd and everything, that day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also others, sorry, there were, there were also other boats with him. A furious squall came about, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind calmed down. And it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and waves obey him. All right, we'll stop there for a moment. Uh, anything come up from that, from Bible study? I don't know if you guys, I wasn't at Bible study on, on Thursday because I was at a baseball game with my son, but 
Was there uh, anything that came up from that part of the passage, or did it? Did you guys really just kind of stick in that other part? Anybody was there? Or anything come up from anybody reading that right now? Anybody have exper- has experienced that sense of like wind and waves of life? <laughs> if we want to put it into that kind of metaphor. I think it's an important part of this passage that it's not meant to necessarily be on its own. Sometimes when we read through the scriptures, we're supposed to, we, we like take it chunk by chunk and kind of see it as its own story with its own uh, ideas. And I know that there's truth in that story alone, but I believe it's meant to be connected with that next portion that we'll get to in a minute. Yeah. Uh, it's like Jesus has said everything is to his disciples about the, the soil and the kingdom of God and what it can look like in the world and what good soil looks like and how things grow on its own without anybody doing anything. It just continues to go forth, and he, and he wants them to see what that looks like in action. So he takes them to the other side of the lake. But on that way to the other side of the lake, Jesus needs his disciples to know that what they will meet on the other side, whatever they meet on the other side, Jesus claims the authority over. He has the, the, he is in charge of the most destructive forces of the world. He has complete authority over them. There's a belief during that time that, that, that what lives underneath the waters, the deep waters of the lakes or the oceans or the seas, was evil. It was scary. It was destructive. And so for Jesus to go into that space with his disciples and claim authority over it, Jesus was claiming authority over all things that are destructive and evil and scary and too uncertain in this world. And Jesus is saying, I have power even over that. And I think it's really important because what we're going to see here in a minute is that Jesus is saying, okay, this is what good soil looks like. And all of the people listening were like, well, I've got good soil. I've got great soil. I think my heart is in the right place for what you're saying, Jesus. And Jesus is like, all right, so let's go find some good soil. Let's go over to this other side of the lake because this is where God's kingdom can grow and flourish. That's a scientific explanation. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. That's good. That's good. Man, there's so much conversation. I'm really enjoying this. Um, yeah, and I, so I, I think I think the, the important part of this passage, it, obviously there's a lot going on in this passage, but I think it's meant to push us into the next portion of Scripture where we see this place of, of God's grace um, and his mercy and where, where God's grace and God's kingdom isn't limited to a type of people, it's not limited to a certain place, and it's not limited to a way of understanding, a specific way of understanding, that, that Jesus is bringing all that God represents to a place that the people, the, the Jewish folks at that point, would have not expected um, a Jewish rabbi to do. Um, so I think sometimes, before we get into that passage, I think sometimes when we... When I think of the church and I think of uh, American Christianity in a lot of ways, I feel like sometimes we stunt God's reach towards others because we want to stand in the path as a gatekeeper. So instead of saying, oh, yes, of course Jesus is going to go to that other side, to that other place, if I was in that place, if I was one of his disciples, I'd be like, well, there's plenty of people over here that already fit in this paradigm. Why don't we just stay here for a while? Like, why don't we just... You know, we don't need to go over there. They're kind of scary. They're a little weird. They're a little. They make me a little uncomfortable. And I think like 
for as Christians like myself, I I feel like I am really good at determining who gets to be loved by God and if they're worthy of that love. And so I think in a lot of ways, I'm constantly having to unlearn the things that I've learned. I grew up in the focus on the family kind of a culture in that American Christianity where to love my neighbor, to love them really well, means that I'm in charge of pointing out their sin. That's what real love is. And all the while, I'm kind of benefiting from a place where I'm living in a place that's kind of built on greed and built on pride, and I'm seeped in my own sin that I see, oftentimes I see, and the sin that I know not what I do. And we're all in that sort of space. We are all sinners in need of grace, right? But at the same time, even though I will recognize I am a sinner in need of God's grace, I will pridefully take God's honorable place as gatekeeper and point out each person's problem because I believe I am better at doing God's job than God is sometimes. God is super capable of doing that. (laughs) And this is an area where I have to be so aware of in my own heart. As a, as a pastor, as a Christian, as someone who grew up believing that I had the corner on God. And I think what I see in this passage that we're going to get to is that it reveals God's heart for the world through Jesus' interaction with a man that the world would, redeem, would deem unredeemable, a man that the world would see as a lost cause and somebody better just to be forgotten. And this passage reveals how God has this unending grace and mercy. And I think when we look at it, we can see maybe how we try to limit God's grace and mercy in some ways. So it's a passage that is challenging for me, and I hope it's challenging for you too. So we're going to read it together. Uh, We're going to actually just read the first five verses right now. They're really um, descriptive in a lot of ways. And so I want you just to like, Sit in that for a second when I read it. It says in verses, we'll read verses 1 through 5, chapter 5. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot But he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. What kind of picture are you guys getting from that? I I see this, this man as someone who has caused a major disruption Uh, in the way that his people, like his community, lived. So much so that they needed to remove him far enough away so they wouldn't have to deal with him or they wouldn't have to acknowledge the difficulty of having him be a part of their community. And I don't think that this is the fault of the community necessarily. Like there are some challenges that communities are unequipped for. But I wonder if all of those challenges that we experience in our lives or in the life of our community, I wonder if isolation is, is the best move. Is that the best thing? Like, out of sight, out of mind, I don't have to deal with this anymore. Um, 
And it's something that I wrestle with a lot, honestly. I, I do. And you know, I, I don't want to deal with this person or this situation. Uh, so it's easier to ignore the pain that that person is experiencing or just feeling the desire to move past it. Um, and I think in that way, we create boundaries in our churches. We, we create these like spaces in our churches where everyone looks the same or everyone behaves the same in order to belong, fully belong. And we see, and we see this in the homeless community a lot. We set up, we set up homeless spaces outside of town where no one has to engage in the pain of their struggle. And we make sure that other people are there who are paid to be there, who are there to, to make sure that those people are cared for. So that way we don't, we don't have to. I, I look at, you know, if you look at prison reformation in, in the sense of solitary confinement, solitary confinement never heals a person in any way. It actually makes their pain worse. And studies show that solitary confinement creates like a, a mental deterioration that happens within a person's mind where the areas of their tormenting, the areas that, are, that they are tormented by, become unbearable. It becomes so much more obvious to them because isolation brings a person's psyche and a person's self-worth to nothing. Jesus seeks to heal. And we'll see that in this passage. Jesus is always seeking to heal. Isolation always seeks to destroy. But how do we engage these areas? Like, How do we actually engage these areas of isolation from marginalized people? I think it's a question we have to ask ourselves and really sit with and wrestle with because oftentimes we are unequipped for such struggle and such engagement, or at least we believe that we're unequipped. We really, truly believe that we are. But as Christians, as people who have committed our lives to Christ, we house the spirit of Christ in us. We take Jesus to every situation and to every encounter with every person that might be uncomfortable and might be challenging for us, but we are not alone in it. We are not unequipped because we have Christ with us. I mean, it might be good to have some training. It might be good to go with other people. It might be good to like make wise choices and wise decisions, but Christ is always with us. And I think that Jesus is always wanting to restore and heal people including ourselves, absolutely including ourselves. And the best way towards restoration and towards experiencing the love of God is through community, is through each other. And what we see with that because of this demon or the, the, the demons, we don't know how many it is necessarily, but we see that this man has injured himself. He scares those around him. His community probably didn't know how to help. He is isolated by his pain. He has to back away from healthy relationships. He is controlled by an outside entity, and he feels utterly trapped. Sometimes solitary confinement is one that we are placed in because of external circumstances. But other times, solitary confinement is one that we've placed ourselves there. I mean, have you ever experienced like that kind of pain, that kind of... But what happens in those sorts of situations is that we become changed by that, right? Like there's this fear or this reality that we no longer 
are who we once were before this thing took a hold of our lives. And it's hard to even recognize ourselves anymore in some ways. But I love how Jesus approaches this man, a Gentile man who represents everything that is against God. I mean, he's in the tombs, which means he is unclean. He is bringing, he is bringing death and destruction with him. And yet Jesus is like, yeah, you're who I want to encounter. You look like good soil. <laughs> I love that so much. And, and, and this, this man that is absolutely against all the purposes of what we would think God would be about. And Jesus approaches this man and commands the demon to come out of him. He knew that this man couldn't ask for what he needed. This man had absolutely no way of asking for what he needed. Jesus met this man where he was at, in his obscene behavior, in his destructive state, in his chaotic mind. He meets him where he is at, and he never, meet, he never waits for the man to muster up enough courage and enough strength and enough ability to ask for help. There were no spiritual bootstraps that Jesus was handing out for him to say, here you go, now you've got this, you have all you need to pull yourself up, I believe you can do it all by yourself, because I gave you the tools. Jesus saw a person where everyone else saw a problem. Jesus saw worth and value where everyone else saw an obstacle and a complication that they just couldn't step into any longer or was better left to be avoided. And Jesus met him there. And Jesus sees this man and he engages with him by asking his name. Knowing a person's name, even if it's not their given name, is is a really good place to start. How do we get to know people? How do we engage with people? We ask them their name. And and he gives him the name Legion, which is not his given name. It's a name that's, that's associated with him because of the character trait that he is living out by. But it's the name that he was known by before he was restored. So we're going to keep reading, and we'll go into that part. Uh, we'll leave in verse 6. We'll go to verse 15 here on Mark 5. When, Jesus, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. What are the, well, first of all, what's coming up so far before I go into what I have? Anything coming up from this? What's that? Compassion? Yeah. Totally. 
Lots of questions. <laughs> That's the best kind of response, I think, when we come to the Bible. Like, what? I love just like reading scripture and then just writing like a bazillion questions down and like seeing if I can figure it out or just allow them to be. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the coolest things that comes about when studying the Bible or just even reading scripture is that uh, today specifically is that we were not a part of the culture back then. Like it's so unknown to us. It's, it's foreign to us. It's 2000 years ago, like not just, not just America, but 2000 years ago in Rome, like it's crazy, totally different kind of culture. Uh, And so there's a lot of undertones that comes in this that are for a different sermon, of course, but I think one of the things that comes to the top of my mind is the name Legion. Legion was a term used for a Roman army. It was usually about 3,000 to 5,000 military personnel was put into a legion of of, of a group of of military who were there to um, to obliterate, to uh, to keep people in this place of subduing them, to fighting, to destroying, all in the name of empire, the empire that they served. So that right there has a lot of meaning. Um, I think another thing that's interesting is the fact that pigs are great swimmers. So for them to be killed in this would be like there's a there's something else going on here that we're not going to get into today. So I encourage you to figure that out on your own. But it's definitely interesting to see that there are so many undertones that are happening in this passage that we miss when we read it at face value. I think it's also important to recognize that that um, that gut reaction that you had when we read about these pigs drowning is a good reaction. And I think it's interesting how much of us usually find ourselves drawn to that. Like, well, that's not fair to those poor pigs. Like, does God hate pigs? I don't think God hates pigs. I, I think that we're supposed to be disturbed by animal, by animal cruelty. Like, that's meant to disturb us in so many ways. Because God created animals in this world that God loves and that God created as good. And we are meant to care for them and, and God has entrusted them to us. But the thing I'm struck by most in this part of this passage, I'm, I'm like I'm drawn to it again and again, is verse 15, where it says, "When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid." If we see this man sitting at the feet of Jesus, he has taken this posture of a disciple, because only disciples sat at the feet of their rabbis. He is there to learn. He is there to grow. He wants to learn everything he can. And we read this, and it seems like just seconds later, like the, the pigs are dead, and now like the townspeople are there with their pitchforks. This is probably hours and hours later. Like they aren't in town when this happened. They are way outside of town. People had to run there, had to let people know. It spread throughout the countryside, and then people gather. So this whole time, this man is sitting at the feet of, of Christ. And I love how the text says that he was fully dressed and in his right mind. Sometimes we have absolutely no hope of sitting at the feet of Jesus when there's a legion of voices in our mind convincing us of how unworthy we are, of how damaged we are, of how afraid we should be of actually living this good life that God has gifted us with. 
When that legion of voices, that hamster wheel of voices saying that you aren't enough, you aren't enough, you aren't enough keeps going on in our brain, it is so hard to sit at the feet of Jesus and even be in that place to receive anything from him. Oftentimes, healing looks like medication. It looks like therapy. It looks like community. It looks like prayer. Healing looks like all of those things together in some sort of miraculous thing. And sometimes healing looks like an actual miracle where God comes in and disrupts that pattern of thinking so you can finally be still and know that he is God. But all of these lies that constantly come about in our mind are ones that distract us from our true identity as worthy and beloved. And those lies are ones that silence the voice of Jesus and muffles the truth of what he's trying to say. And when those things are stopped, we can finally be still and sit at the feet of Jesus. Any thoughts before we keep going? All right. It's good for me. (laughs) I usually write things for me. (laughs) All right. uh, Verse 16 and 17, it says, Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. I think when Jesus disrupts the status quo and the way things are, oftentimes that response is to leave. Like, we, we want this new thing or this uncomfortable thing or different person to be gone because it's just too hard to change the way things are. Sometimes it feels hard to engage in those spaces. Rachel Held Evans, who did pass away yesterday morning, I think we've got a quote. Paul, do we have a quote of her? on? She says, uh, what makes the gospel offensive isn't who, isn't who keeps it, who it keeps out, sorry but who it lets in. What makes the gospel offensive isn't who it keeps out, but who it lets in. I think it's providential in maybe some sort of twisted way that the passage of Mark 5 that we are in today is happens to come on the day after she passed. And I think it's providential because there's probably a deeper word for us in this passage than simply Jesus casting demons out of a man. I think this story is one where Jesus is throwing open the gates and tearing down the walls of who gets to partake in God's kingdom. He crosses over the sea. He comes to this place where there is no good soil that we can see there at all. And he plants a seed. He says, this is the kind of soil I can work with. Rachel goes on and she says, but the gospel doesn't need a coalition devoted to keeping the wrong people out. It's a family of sinners saved by grace, committed to tearing down the walls, throwing open the doors, and shouting, welcome, there's bread and wine. Come eat with us and talk. This isn't a kingdom for the worthy. It's a kingdom for the hungry. Let's go to verse 18. It says, As Jesus was getting into the boat, 
The man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. This man had experienced a resurrection in his life. Sometimes when Jesus changes us, it's easier to begin again elsewhere. But Jesus tells him to stay and and declare how much God had done for him. And as far as we know, this man became the very first Gentile evangelist. He became the first missionary that we can read of. The other one is the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman that we read about in John. These are people that didn't have good soil from our perspective, and yet God was like, those are the people I want to work with. They're the ones who will plant the smallest of seeds that will grow into the largest of plants in the garden. These are the people that I want to bring the good news of God's transformative love into the world. And this man shares his testimony of who he was before and who he is now because he encountered God's love for him through Jesus Christ. Jesus says, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Man, that's the first time Jesus has done the Great Commission. He had the Great Commission for this man here. Go and tell how God has changed your life. Go and tell the story of your life, how it has been changed by God. Is your story, it's the question I have to ask myself, it's a question I ask all of us in this community, in this room, in this family, how is our story of Jesus Christ revealing Jesus in the world? Is the story that I am declaring, is it pointing to me? Is it pointing back to me? Or is the story that Jesus has done in my life pointing back to Christ? How is my story, how I've been changed by God, how is it leading people to Jesus for the benefit of this community, the benefit of this family? Is my life pointing people to Jesus or is it just pointing back to me? What makes the gospel so offensive isn't who it keeps out, but who it lets in. Are you inviting people in by telling your story of God's acceptance of you, of how God has made something new and beautiful out of your life? How is your story, because we all have one, how is your story bringing Jesus, who lives within you, to other people? How are you living that out in your day-to-day life, in your classrooms and in your jobs and in your family interactions, at the grocery store, in courthouse, in adoptive families, in all the places that we step foot in? How are we bringing Jesus to those places? Because people are hungry for Christ. What makes the gospel offensive isn't who it keeps out, but who it lets in. Jesus, I thank you for your word today. 
I know there's more there that we couldn't get to today. And so as we go throughout our week, Lord, I pray that we can just be in that, that scripture, in this passage. That you have a word of challenge and a word of encouragement and a word of grace for each of us. Lord, I thank you for calling us by name. By pulling us out of the places that we are so isolated. By setting our feet on a solid rock. By claiming truth and beauty and worth over each of us. And by changing us as your people. But God, I don't want to just be the kind of person that's changed by you and keep it for myself. This is something I am meant to share with others. I'm meant to to hold out to others and, and bring other people into that same beauty and grace. And God, I know that there are people in this room right now that are feeling isolated. And they are feeling alone. So Jesus, I pray that your spirit lets them know that they are not alone, that you are with them. Have them ask for help. Have them come to this community. Have them be a part of this family and show us ways that we are called to throw open this door, that we are are called to be a people that continually bestow love and grace and say, come to the table. It is wide and vast and expansive and no one is left out. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We pray blessing over communion, over the bread and over the juice, over your body and your blood as we consume all that you represent back into our lives once again. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.